The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. I'm going to read Mark 2, verses 15 down to 22. Um, we're going to actually be doing a whole lot in the second chapter of Mark this morning, but just kind of remind you of where we've been, where we're headed. Beginning with verse 15, follow along as I read. And as he, that is Jesus, reclined at table in his house, that is in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. It's the word of the Lord, and it is for our good. I, I believe the title of my message to be true, that Jesus has thrown a party for the whole world. That Jesus has thrown a party for the whole world and we are invited to it. That's why I keep saying that the future is Jesus Christ. Our joy does not depend on the end of a global pandemic. Our joy is not found when inflation drops. Our joy will not be found in, uh, you know, Olympic gold. It's not how joy is found. The promise of a glorious future of joy is centrally located in Jesus Christ. He is our present joy. He is our future joy as well. And I want to remind us that the church has a wonderful opportunity to both show and tell how Jesus brings true joy. This is what we've been seeing so far in Mark's gospel. Everywhere Jesus went, joy accompanied him. He heals, he delivers, he restores. Think about the credibility of Jesus just on the basis of everywhere he went, joy was to be found. And, and I want to remind us, that we have an opportunity right in this present time to restore some of the credibility that the church has lost if we will become a people 
overflowing with joy regardless of the circumstances that we face. Our happiness meter may go up and down depending on circumstances. But happiness is a fruit of joy. Joy is not dependent upon circumstances. Joy is rooted in Jesus Christ. And so we have an opportunity to say to this region that is downtrodden, that is so very tired, that is so very needy, we have an opportunity to say to them that the life of joy that is found in Jesus is for them. That Jesus has thrown a party for them. But I'm challenged in my own life to ask, how will they believe it unless they see that joy in me? Unless that joy is contagious in me. So yes, joy to the world has come because Jesus has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You might remember that I preached about uh, a violent collision taking place when Jesus enters into the world. When Mary conceived Jesus, I said a violent collision took place. Evil was moved off the mark. But I want to remind you that uh, in that collision, a ripple effect took place. It went in two different directions. First, it went all the way back to the very beginning of human time. Don't miss the first line in Mark's gospel when Mark says, in the beginning, or this is the beginning of the gospel of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But then that ripple effect, when Jesus enters into the world, moves forward. It reverberates into the seminal events in the life of Jesus when he is publicly crucified and then publicly is raised from the dead and shows himself alive by many proofs, but then it goes forward throughout human history and then beyond, as Buzz Lightyear would say, to infinity and Oh, I was worried there for a moment. You weren't awake or you didn't know the line. I kind of got nervous there, right? I'm not a big fan of Buzz. I kind of am a Woody fan, but I'm just saying it's it's a truth. The joy of Jesus, it goes... From the cross to the resurrection to the ascension to the exaltation to the return and to glory and to infinity and beyond. This is the big idea for today's sermon. We'll put it up on the screen for you. The joy that was lost at the beginning of human time was recovered by Jesus and it is through Jesus then that joy becomes timeless. I don't want you to miss it this morning. Joy that was lost at the beginning of human time was recovered by Jesus and it is through Jesus then that joy becomes timeless. And this is what's been happening in Mark's gospel. The curtain has been pulled back and just even the first two chapters, and we begin to see how Jesus is the focal point of all joy. But you know, Mark gets at it a little differently than the other uh, gospel writers get at it. In Luke's birth narrative, there is this heavenly joy that spills out 
and becomes earthly joy. Elizabeth and Zechariah, joy, barrenness to bounty, right? Joy comes. At the birth of Christ, the heavens are filled, the angels sing. Joy has come to the world with the Lord's birth. The Magi eventually come, bring their gifts. Joy spills out. This is Luke's kind of narrative of joy. In Matthew's birth narrative, it goes differently. We see that there is now joy for the house of Israel because the seed of David has been raised up and he is going to take the throne. In John's gospel, the narrative changes. It Joy predates the creation of the world as Jesus is declared to be the eternal God, the eternal Logos, the eternal Word. But what about Mark? It seems kind of strange that we don't have more or something at all right about the birth of Jesus. But Mark's intention is this. He wants to show us that the joy that was lost at the beginning of human time was indeed recovered by Jesus and that through Jesus, joy becomes timeless. That's why he begins his gospel with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It sounds like what Mark is telling us is that Jesus is going to reach back into the beginning of human time and begin to change things. And so this is what I propose is happening throughout Mark's gospel. We are invited to read how Jesus brings joy to the world by recovering what was lost through Adam's sin way back, way back, the beginning of human time in Genesis 3. Now, I, I want to show you this here in Mark's second chapter, the second chapter of Mark's gospel. And um, if, you, if you were to read it and kind of overlay it with Genesis 1 through 3, you're going to see some things that connect together and uh, a sequence that unfolds. Now, I'm going to help you with this a little bit. We're going to put this first section up on the screen so that you'll see it. And this is just kind of a survey of chapter 2. In verses 1 through 12, you have a question raised. And that question is found in verse 7. Who has the authority to forgive sins? In verses 15 through 17, another question is asked. Why does Jesus eat with sinners? In verses 18 through 22, a question again is raised. Why don't the disciples of Jesus fast? And then finally, at the end of the chapter, in verses 23 through 28, you have a fourth question asked. Why are the disciples of Jesus breaking Sabbath law? Now, those questions are actually the central issue in Genesis 1 through 3. Only Mark presents them in reverse order. And I'm going to tell you why he does that in just a minute. So I want to show you the order in Genesis 1 through 3. We'll put it up on the screen again just to help you. When was Sabbath first established and who established it? Well, it was first established on the seventh day of creation. That shows up in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. And then this question of fast and feast. Who established the first feast and where was the location and who was invited to do the feasting? Well, 
God established it when he said to Adam in the garden, you can eat of every tree and of everything in the garden that is yours to enjoy except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then, when did the need for forgiveness of sins first appear? And who needed forgiveness? And, even more importantly, who initiated the act of forgiveness? Well, if you read Genesis 1, uh, 3, verses 1 through 7, what do you find? You find Adam sinning. You find Adam and Eve in need of forgiveness. But who initiates the act of forgiveness? It is God. For God is the one who comes to call. Adam, where are you? We're supposed to meet for our walk. Where are you? And there's Adam and Eve. Where are they? They're in the bushes. Their eyes are open. They know themselves to be naked. They're ashamed. These central issues in Genesis 1 through 3 are the very issues that are raised in Mark 2. And if you, again, you take it and you overlay it, you begin to see how these issues now in Mark's gospel presented in reverse order. Why? Because when you move from Sabbath, seventh day is God initiated, and you get all the way down to where Adam has sinned, and the curse now is in place, what do you need at that point? You need a savior. And when that savior shows up, he doesn't start back with Sabbath. He reverses the order by addressing first who has authority to forgive sins. The son of man. So we're going to put that up on the screen so you see how Mark deals with it in a reverse order. Now, we at one time, maybe we still do, you know, we had a lot of Red Sox fans in the church, and that was good, but for a lot of years they were long-suffering, and they were all waiting for the curse to be reversed, right? And finally it was. On that glorious day, the long-suffering Red Sox fans, the curse was reversed. Well, from Genesis 3 all the way to the coming of Jesus into the world, humanity has been waiting for the curse to be reversed. And the good news is very good when we consider that joy then returns to the world when Jesus, who is the source of all joy, comes into the world. Jesus said, time has now been fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the long-awaited promise has now been realized. The one who is going to crush the head of the serpent has come. I am here. The curse is reversed. And so these questions raised by the Jewish leadership now can be rightly answered. They are the very questions that are raised in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Who has the authority to forgive sins? The Son of Man does. Why does Jesus eat with sinners? Because he came for sinners. Why don't the disciples of Jesus fast? The bridegroom is here. A new day of celebration has been initiated. It is located in Jesus. And why do the disciples of Jesus seem to be breaking Sabbath law? What does it say at the very end of chapter 2? The Son of Man 
The same one who has forgiven sins is the one who is also Lord of Sabbath rest. For there is absolutely no way to have Sabbath rest unless the Son of Man has forgiven you of your sins. It is a beautiful thing that Mark does for us in chapter number 2. And it sets for us that our joy in the larger biblical story of what God is accomplishing in Jesus Christ. And as Mark pulls back the curtain, he says, look no further than Jesus for your joy. But your joy is not just going to be found in changing circumstances, being healed from leprosy, being delivered from your blindness, being able to walk, being able to even be raised from the dead. Because Sabbath rest, true rest, the eternal rest is found in what he has accomplished for us on our behalf. His gospel shows us then that as we immerse our lives within the language of God's new creation, we then will develop a vocabulary of joy. A vocabulary of joy. His gospel shows us this. And as we develop that vocabulary of joy, we then begin to bear a much more credible witness about who Jesus is regardless of our circumstances. Regardless of what you know today that you don't know tomorrow but you're going to find out tomorrow. The unchangeable one. The unchangeable Lord and Savior, the Son of Man, Jesus, is already there waiting for you in those new circumstances, favorable or unfavorable. You know, when, uh, when Mark begins his gospel with this testimony of good news, when he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, he sets us off on a really good course. But when you get to the end of the story, Mark is going to use the testimony of a rather surprising and unexpected witness to also testify of the good news of Jesus. Turn, turn in your Bible there to Mark chapter number 15. To Mark chapter number 15. And what we're going to find in verse number 39 is that the surprise witness is a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion. Now, now this man who is at the crucifixion of Jesus, that's what Mark 15 is, it's the crucifixion story, this man would not have just been there, you know, as a casual observer. He was actually would have been the man in charge of the man who laid Jesus on a cross and nailed him to the cross. And this man would have seen countless numbers of people die. Countless numbers of people. And listen to his testimony in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him, that is facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. I want to pause here and I want you to think about something. We have all been, I shouldn't say all, many of us have been in situations where someone is dying. And in most cases, 
The room is quiet, people are crying or weeping and talking, but the room is generally peaceful and quiet. The room is most likely clean and, and, and trying to make the situation best as possible. In, in a lot of cases, people are sedated. Their passing is peaceful. But if you've ever been in a situation where that is not the case, then you'll understand what I'm about to say. For Golgotha's hillside was no peaceful place. And this hardened Roman soldier would have seen or heard the anguishing cries even that surrounded him that very day when Jesus is being crucified. There there would have been no sedation that would have taken care of the pain and the agony of those being crucified. And yet this man does not turn away from Jesus. He does not look to his soldiering duties. He looks into the face of the blessed Son of God, the one who heard his own father say at his baptism, this is my much-loved son, listen to him. This hardened soldier looked into the face of Jesus. And Mark gives us this detail. He watched him as he breathed his last breath. And the conclusion he drew was this. That man is exactly who he said he was. The Son of God on earth. Friends, joy to the world. The Lord has come. How far does the joy reach as far as the curse is found? Even to the most God-forsaken place that humanity has ever known, the hillside of Golgotha. Joy that Jesus brings reached even into the heart of a hardened soldier. Part of the group of men that drove the nails into the very Son of God. And the joy of Jesus reached into his heart as he saw Jesus take his last breath. He concluded that he is exactly who he says he is. Can I, can I remind us that in whatever ways the curse of sin and death has touched your life, the entire testimony of the Bible is this. That through Jesus, forgiveness of sins has come and a true Sabbath joy has come as well. Sabbath is the party that Jesus has thrown for the entire world. All of creation will rejoice when the groaning and the curse is lifted and all of creation made new and all of creation rejoicing the trees of the field, clapping their hands with joy and you and I moving out of this life and into the life of eternal joy with Jesus. We'll clap our hands as well with all of creation. Joy has come to the world and it reaches as far as the curse is found, which is why Jesus said, time is fulfilled. The hope of human history, the promise God impregnated time with, that a Savior would come, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What is the only response to give then? Repent. 
and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. There is no sin that you have created, caused, wrought, followed, that is far, that is too great to be overcome by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. For joy has come as far as the curse is found. Now what we see in Mark chapter 2 is typical of, of religion. It was true of Jesus' day, it's true today. Religion is always going to fight against the party that grace invites us to. The established religion of the Jews battled the joy of Jesus. The Christian religion, as it is developed in our own country, fights against the joy of Jesus as well. The gospel of grace is always going to be under attack. And the questions that the religious leaders asked, the false accusations that they made against Jesus, are the same questions and false accusations that people make against Christians today, make against the name of Jesus today. Why is that important to remember? <laughs> because the true church of Jesus is to live within the forgiveness and the feasting and the freedom of grace. We are to adopt the same thing Jesus adopted, and that is a life of largeness. I mean, just try to wrap your head around the largeness of Jesus and his grace. The one who fed thousands with a few loaves and fishes is the same one who has given his life for the world. For the world. My capacity today to throw a party might include my wife and our dog. I mean, the, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back might be broken if Robert shows up. I don't know, you know. Don't try it, Robert. Our capacities are so limited when we look to ourselves. But if we look to the capacities of Jesus, the largeness of the grace of God, he has thrown a party for the world, a party defined by grace because it is the Sabbath rest that God initially gave. Lost in Adam's sin, recovered by Jesus, now bringing sinners into it, recovering them, renewing them, restoring them. Are you tired from your efforts to try to get on God's good side? Turn to Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Are you tired from the disordered love of your life? The things that get in the way, the sins that so easily beset? We live in a world of fractured relationships. We live in a world where people are pursuing things on their own terms but the church says no in jesus we are returned to a sabbath rest of fellowship and friendship with god that's why the beginning of mark 2 starts with the forgiveness of sins that belong to the son of man on earth that's what jesus said right and it ends then with the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath who's the lord of the sabbath it's the son of man the one who forgives our sins is the one that brings us into his eternal rest. But this joy did come at great cost. And I just want to touch very quickly on verse number 20 of chapter 2. 
in this question of fasting, Jesus says this. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So, so Jesus has responded to the criticism by saying, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom's with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But then he stops. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Now, there are some who think that that refers to uh, the ascension of our Lord into heaven and that there is this disciples are having to wait for a period of time before the Lord returns. I don't think that is at all what Jesus is referring to. Just read the book of Acts. I mean, the, the whole book is filled with the Holy Spirit and joy. There's no fasting going on. But when was the bridegroom taken away? On the night in which Jesus was betrayed. And by the time you get to his cross, who's there? Just basically Jesus. The betrayer is gone. The denier is weeping. The disciples have fled. Uncertainty, doubt. What's going to happen? We're not sure of what our future looks like. There was this brief period of fasting. Until three days later when you have these blessed women at the tomb attending to the body of Jesus, only they get a surprise. The risen Lord. And now the bridegroom with them forever feasting returns. Joy came at great cost. The violent collision that happened when Jesus entered into the world moved evil off the mark, and now we get to come into the feasting of Jesus. No longer do we have to bear our own shame and guilt. A Savior has come for us. He takes our place. He intercedes for us, and we are invited into his eternal joy. As I said at the beginning of this service, I realize that there are many in our congregation, and yes, in our world, who are truly suffering at this time. Sickness, sadness, relationships, all kinds of suffering. I know many are tired, many have been hurt in a variety of ways. And sometimes our circumstances are such that it is hard for us to hear a message about joy. Our suffering is so acute it's so very painful. But nevertheless, the gospel invites us into the joy of our Savior Jesus. The gospel says, don't look at your circumstances, but look at the Savior who has experienced even far worse circumstances, who has overcome them, and who lives for you today. A Savior who not only came for us, but a Savior who is present with us. And, and my encouragement to our church, to, I live with this encouragement every day, is to give whatever we may be facing at this moment over to Jesus. And I know that sounds so Christian-like, so church-like, but it is exactly what we need to do. 
to give things to Jesus. So, so, so just let me bring this to a conclusion. The sermon's been a bit long, but let me just bring it to a conclusion. If feasting means joy, then let the church celebrate with joy because we have been given to the world as a gift of joy. If we would recover feasting as a normative of church life, our credibility with our neighbors and people around us, I think, would uh, instantly increase. Feasting, you know, however, doesn't begin with a potluck. So you say, oh, let's have more feasting. Let's throw a potluck next week. That's not where feasting begins. It begins as we share in his word and then we share in his life in a fellowship together. We, we don't have to imagine the impact that a crowded room of Christians who are praying together and studying God's word together, we don't have to imagine the impact of it. Again, read the book of Acts. Or come and talk to me. I'll tell you stories about it in my you know, first two-thirds of my ministry at this church. Of the impact of joy that was credible as people were galvanized to come together, to share together around the Word and at the table of our Lord. Now as that feasting is recovered, the other kinds of fellowship we can enjoy are done and then they, they unify us together. Let the potlucks begin, sure. But first, let us come together around the Word and come together around the table of our Lord with our faith and with our doubt, with our love and forgiveness, with our sorrow, with our joy. And then as we do that together, it will only then be so much more natural to have somebody over to stay after at the coffee bar and enjoy some food and fellowship together. And so I want to close by introducing next week's sermon. Where will the energy come from to once again do these things? Where's it going to come from? Who in this church will be the next group of catalyst leaders who through the power and engagement of the Holy Spirit galvanize people around God's Word and around true fellowship? What new wineskins will be introduced in our church that will move forward the kingdom of God? Well, we're going to get some of those questions addressed next week. But let me just say that the energy needed for this church to move forward will only come from those who avail themselves to a grace-filled largeness that is found in Jesus. But for now... Let us rejoice, for the coming of Jesus into the world has moved evil off the mark. And right now, through his grace-filled largeness, Jesus is throwing a party for the entire world, and you're invited to it. So come, repent, and believe the gospel. Father, I thank you for your word to us this morning. I pray that uh, it would... Uh, ring truly in our hearts and minds. And Father, wherever we um, just simply need to call out to you through our frustrations or through our tears or through our sadness or through our hopes and our gladness, let us remember that you are a present help 
for all of those things. I would encourage you to be quiet before the Lord for a few moments as we prepare ourselves for His table, where we once again come together to celebrate the joy of Jesus for the world. Let's be quiet before Him. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.